Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Christ. And thank you that the cross and Christ are not merely historical. The cross and Christ are present as we live in dependency upon Christ, as we glory in him. As we interact with your word this morning, we want to be a people who hears with an intent to live in light of Christ, in light of Scripture, for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Do you enjoy observing people? I enjoy observing people, you know, just sit down someplace and watch what they do. One of the times in my life when I really enjoyed people was when we were in Ghana. Dave Topman had gone to the bank, but we went along with him. While he was in the bank, just stood and observed people, what the people were doing, how they related, how they responded. They didn't know I was watching, just watched. Another time I enjoyed observing people was when we were in the Dominican Republic, building a chapel, and one of those times just kind of stepped back and watched. You know, the kids playing in the area, people walking along, just observing what they did, what they didn't do, how they talked, how they responded in life. And in the passage of Scripture we're discussing this morning, in Mark chapter 12, 35 through 44, we find that Jesus is observing people in a very specific situation, in a very specific setting. We want to read verses 35 through 44 together. And while you're turning there, keep in mind that Mark 11, 27 through the end of chapter 12, is taking place in the temple. In verses 27 through 33, we find that the authority of Jesus, is, Jesus was questioned and he responded. In chapter 12, 1 through 12, he gives the parable of the tenants, where he is condemning religious leaders. And then in 13 through 17, Jesus is questioned concerning taxes. And he says, give to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. Then he was questioned about the resurrection. He said, I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. He was questioned concerning the greatest commandment. And then Jesus turns around and asks some questions. Let's begin reading with verse 35 of Mark 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Set up my right hand until put your enemies under my feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, 
worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasure than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It's interesting the contrast that takes place here. In verses 38 through 40, Jesus talked about the teachers of the law. They walk around in flowing robes. They want the most important places. They devour widows' houses. And then he gives the account of the widow who is poor and gave all that she had. Just the contrast in the context is very interesting. Jesus apparently is observing what is taking place. This observation taking place in the temple. And this is just an idea of what the temple looked like in the day of Jesus. And the particular area of the temple where Jesus is watching is in the women's court. Jesus is observing people giving money in this area of the temple. Just observes. And apparently they were not necessarily aware that they were being observed, but nevertheless, being observed by Jesus. And as he watches them, what does he notice? Rich people throwing in large amounts. And a poor widow comes and puts in two very small copper coins. Again, worth only a fraction of a penny. See, money speaks. It always has. And aware of this, the Lord apparently chooses the temple, the treasury for his departing shot, if you want to call it that, before he leaves the temple and later on goes to the cross. Money giving tends to reveal our heart, as few other things can. The temple area in which they gave their money would have had 13 brass treasure chests. They were called trumpets because they were shaped like a trumpet. They were an inverted horn, the small part of the horn, you know, being shaped at, at the top so that no one could reach in and steal from the treasury. According to the Mishnah, each chest bore a description designating what the offering was for. New shekel dues, old shekel dues, bird offerings, young birds for the whole offering, wood, frankincense, gold for the mercy seat. And on six of them would have been listed free will offerings. And because the Passover was taking place, there would have been a lot of activity, a lot of people present in the temple putting their offerings into the treasure chest. And here among the noisy activity that is taking place, Jesus observes. I don't know if you've ever gone to the mall and just sat down and watched people. They're being unaware of your observation and your watching. And that's what Jesus is doing. Apparently people are not aware that he is watching. Apparently the 12 are not with him either at least not in his immediate presence. But yet God 
or I should say Christ, is watching. George MacDonald said, when we feel as if God is nowhere, he's watching over us with an eternal consciousness. Above and beyond our every hope and fear. Christ is watching. And as he watches, there's people that throw in large amounts. But the widow put in two lepta, the smallest coins in circulation. The NIV does not convert the sum like the King James. The King James says two mites, which make a farthing. For the Roman readers, apparently, Mark did convert it so that they would understand that the very smallest amount is being put in. How did Jesus know what was thrown in? The text doesn't say. One commentator said he may have known because if money was being given for priests, the priest would stand there, take the money, check it to be sure it was genuine, announce how much was given, and then place it in the chest. How would you like that one? So the offering comes around this morning, and whoever has the offering, oh, Jeff and Anita, here's how much they're putting in. It's genuine. Well, here's how much Daryl's put in. And yeah, it's kind of intimidating, but whether that's what really happened, Jesus knew why is not the issue. But the text clearly says two small copper coins. What does Jesus do? Do he cause the disciples to him? And he says, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything. All she had to live on. Stop and ponder. The one who gave the least gave the most. James Edwards says, and I quote, For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. That point will be repeated in the story of the woman in 14, 3 through 9, who gives an extravagant gift of perfume. The value of her gift is light years greater than the two coins of the poor widow here. Yet remarkably, each is equally praised by Jesus for doing what they could. Their generosity, their sacrifice, if not their respective amounts, are the same. In the temple, others gave what they could spare, but the poor widow spared nothing. Others gave from their surplus, but she gave from her need, all she had to live on. End of quote. Some interesting observations here. When it comes to giving, the posture of the heart makes all the difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 3 says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. You know, the posture of the heart, whether it's a buck or $500, the posture of the heart. Another observation, God can do great things with tiny offerings. The two coins that the lady dropped in have been talked about since that time. Challenging, encouraging others. Another observation, 
Apparently, at the judgment, Christ will settle his accounts. There's no indication in the text that the woman ever knew what Jesus thought about her gift. She will at the judgment. And another observation. God seems to be saying, all are equal. There is no advantage to the rich or to the poor, to the unlettered, to the educated, to the unknown, or to the known. Billy Graham has no advantage over the humblest believer. Or vice versa. All of us, without exception, can do humble things for God. Is it possible for the church to love and give like the widow? Has that ever done so? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5 say, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely in their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do, do, did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. God doesn't merely want our money. He wants us. We can't give ourselves to the Lord apart from our money. Money talks. It tells us where our heart is. What does our giving say about us? R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Mark says, and I quote, There is a disease which is particularly great in this part of the 21st century. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. It was actually discovered in A.D. 34 and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5. It is an acute condition which renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is removed from the afflicted, from the house of God, since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternative environments such as golf courses or clubs or restaurants. Actually, the disease is not a motor problem, but a heart problem. The best remedy is to fall in love with God with all your heart. For where your heart is, there will your treasure be. End of quote. Couple thoughts, questions, not looking for response. Just in relation to what the Lord is saying in this context about giving. Giving to the Lord may be much different than we think. Here's a woman who gave two small coins. And Jesus says they gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. 
Jesus is not knocking the amount the others gave. He's just pointing out what happened with the widow. Just some thought questions. How much does our giving really cost us? Do we give in costly ways? Do we deny ourselves? Does our giving require us to sacrifice? Questions we can ask ourselves as we think about God. Do we give what we can spare? Another question. Why do we give to the Lord? Where is our heart? Do we continue to give in hard times? And we see no obvious blessing. My father and mother taught us kids some good lessons over the years. And one of the ways they taught lessons was that when I was a teenager, dad and mom went through some hard times. Farming was not good. And they didn't see God's blessing on them materially. But yet they continued to love God in giving to him in various ways. Do we give money to satisfy our conscience or to get or in response to God's grace? Just God's grace, giving in response to that. Do we give to get financial recognition? Why do we mention names when people give at times? You know, in some settings, you've got to mention a name. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, just asking. Do we give if we receive nothing in return? What would Jesus say about our giving? As a church, no, about us as individuals. Jesus observes our giving. He knows our heart. We give an account for that. Let God's grace, let Christ and who he is as he was revealed in, the Mark, in Mark's gospel, move us as we give to the Lord.